All right. Tonight, you will need a Bible. We're going to spend most of the evening in the book of Judges. If you want to land in Judges, we'll look at a few other things, but mostly that's where we're going to be. I've been both looking forward to Samson and dreading Samson since we started this series. It's just a, even as I read it, read the story over again today in preparation, it's just a strange, strange story. And in preparation, as I thought about Samson, I thought, you know, um, it's a shame for his sake, I guess, that he wasn't born in the 21st century. In some ways, he was a man ahead of his time. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody use that expression. They were a man or a woman ahead of their time, or they were born before their time. Uh, The idea there is that your talents or your intellect or whatever is so far advanced from the status quo in your own day that you're treated as a kook, or maybe you're a bit misunderstood, and maybe you don't ever see the, the fruits of, of your examples of what I'm talking about fits uh, of the ideas that you have. And this chair look familiar to you? The guy on the left in the chair uh, is Senator Aaron Sargent. Senator Aaron Sargent. In 1878, he proposed a constitutional amendment that would have granted women in 1878 the right to vote. And people thought he was crazy. And it took 42 years for that amendment to pass. And so you would look at him in some sense and say, that was a man ahead of his time, man born before his time. He was ready to do something that everyone else wasn't quite ready to do. On the right, this is such an interesting story, is Dr. Ignaz, or Ignaz, I'm not sure how you say it, Semmelweis, 1847. He worked in the hospital, and he noticed that when the medical students came from the morgue, and then went into the labor and delivery ward without washing their hands, that infant mortality was through the roof. And somehow he picked up on the idea that if these guys would wash their hands before they leave the morgue and then they go to treat these mothers and their babies, that that would help infant mortality. And that seems so obvious to us. I know we think, oh my goodness, they didn't know about germs and all of those things that we take for granted. What was interesting is when he picked up on what was happening, he started telling the doctors, please do this before you come in to the labor and delivery ward, and they refused to do it. They thought that Semmelweis was blaming them for these babies dying, and they sort of bowed up proudly and said, that's not our fault, we don't have anything to do with that, and they refused to do it. And uh, eventually the idea caught on, but not necessarily immediately. And uh, just a strange irony, Dr. Semmelweis was, at the end of his life, committed to a, an ins- insane asylum, and he died of sepsis, infection, the same thing that he tried to save many of these babies and mothers from. So there you go, a man before his time. The next slide, do you know either of these gentlemen? Either of them look familiar? On, yeah, Tesla's one of them. Guy on the left is Jules Verne. He wrote science fiction novels in the 1800s that predicted things and talked about things that really didn't exist at the time. Or if they did exist, his ideas were so far advanced that people read his books and said, this is, this is crazy stuff. We're, we're never going to have those sorts of things. And we look back on them now and we say, well, it's like he knew the things that were going to be invented. He talked about submarines and helicopters and space travel. And he didn't get all the details right, but he sort of had these ideas that were, again, before his time. Tesla is on the right, uh, a brilliant inventor, too smart for most of the people around him. And I read an interesting story. Edison, Thomas Edison, you've heard of Edison, invented all sorts of stuff, and Tesla were contemporaries. And I knew that. This is what I didn't know. I didn't know that Tesla thought Edison was a waste of a scientist. He knew how Edison worked, and he knew how he kept his shop. And uh, when Edison died, the New York Times solicited a number of opinion pieces from his peers and his colleagues, and they published all those pieces in the New York Times at Edison's death. And the only negative opinion piece submitted was from Tesla, and uh, he said he was a waste of time and potential. So that was his thoughts 
about Edison. And again, you look at some of the things that he sort of invented and dreamed about and talked about, and you say, this is a man before his time. So add to that list Samson. And I'll put a couple of pictures of Samson up. Uh, I like the picture on the left. That's Samson killing the lion. And uh, it's a little maybe cartoonish on the left, but you do have to stop and think about the fact, if you've ever seen a lion up close, how strong would a man have to be to overpower a lion? It's really a remarkable thing. The picture on the right I love. This is my favorite piece of art I found this week. That's Rembrandt's painting of Samson having his eyes gouged out. And the painting is bigger than that, but I zoomed in on the, on the part where you can actually see blood squirting out of his eye when he stabbed the thing in there. So there's Samson. A couple of more pictures of Samson, just so you get the idea. Cecil B. DeMille, uh, we think of him as the Ten Commandments guy, but he also had Samson and Delilah. And then the famous scene from the end of his life where he pushes the pillars of the temple down and, and kills a bunch of people in his death. We'll talk about that. You say, why in the world would you include Samson in a list with Senator Sargent and Dr. Semmelweis and Jules Verne and uh, Nicholas Tesla? And the answer is that I think Samson was born ahead of his time. I think he would have been great, really, really great in the era of reality TV. I think that would have been his thing. If you could have had Samson on, for example, uh, an MMA-type program, cage fighting, he would have been world champion, whatever weight class. I mean, he would have, he would have been the man. And uh, we talked about this last week, whether he was a big guy or a little guy. As you thought about it for a week, anybody want to vote for he was a little guy, remarkably strong, scrawny, a few folks? Anybody want to vote for he was big, muscular, and brawny? More hands for that. I don't know. He was strong, and he could have, he could have won some MMA fights. And on the note of uh, reality TV, he would have been a great contestant on The Bachelor, tailor-made <laughs> for The Bachelor. He would have loved it every second of it. And uh, I almost put up a picture of The Bachelor, and I thought, I don't want to get struck by lightning right here in, on a Wednesday night. It's not worth it. So, Samson, a man ahead of his time. In all seriousness, here's a quote about Samson that I think sums up his life well. It's from Daniel Block, Dr. Block, in his commentary on Judges and Ruth. This is what he says. More than any previous agent of deliverance, Samson demonstrates that the divinely chosen leaders were part of Israel's problem rather than a lasting solution. That sums it up perfect for Samson. He was actually part of the problem more than he was part of the solution, at least a lasting solution. Although the narrator is obviously amused by some of Samson's antics, and the narrator seems eager to share with his readers the humor and earthiness of his career, the issues are deadly serious. In fact, according to the preamble to the Deliverer Cycles, we'll read that in a minute, in Samson, the crisis facing the nation reaches its climax and their spiritual condition is at a nadir, meaning this is the high point of the crisis situation and the low point of the spiritual condition of Israel. This man embodies and personifies all that is wrong in Israel. And this last part of the quote is just him comparing Samson to Israel as a nation. So track through this. Like Israel, okay? Samson is a wonderkind, miraculously born by the will of God. You think about God going to Egypt and birthing this nation out to be his son. Israel will be my son, he says. Samson is called to a high life of separation and devotion to Yahweh, just like Israel. Samson has a rash, opportunistic, and immature personality, just like Israel, as you see them in the wilderness. Samson is inexorably drawn to foreign women, just like Israel was drawn to foreign gods. Samson experiences the bondage and oppression of the enemy. Samson cries out to Yahweh from his oppression. Samson is blinded. You can see the same idea in 1 Samuel 3 that Israel, in a sense, is blind. Samson is abandoned by Yahweh, and he does not know it. Really, what we're about to talk about has some humorous spots. Overall, it's a really tragic story, and so... I hate to be a downer, but that's what it is. 
Let's put it in the context of the Old Testament. Samson obviously falls in the period of the judges. So we would move from creation to the fall of mankind in Adam and Eve, the flood, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes. They end up in Egypt. God brings them out uh, under Moses' leadership in the Exodus. He gives them his law at Sinai. The conquest is where the people go in and take the land under Joshua. Then there's this transitional period of the judges. We've spent a lot of time here on Wednesday nights in this series. Right on the heels of the judges, there will be a monarchy first under Saul, then under David, then under Solomon. Then that monarchy is going to be split. Rehoboam and Jeroboam are going to split it in half. The nation will have division. And then both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom get sent into exile, and then God brings back a remnant. And when you get through that part of the storyline, you're right on the heels of Jesus coming. Samson falls in that period of the judges. And just to set the context, let's look at Judges 2. We've read this several times as we've talked about uh, different judges and different uh, people in this period of time. But I just want to read it quickly. Judges 2, we'll read 11 to 19. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity, uh, the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back, and they were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them, they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And that's the cycle all the way through the book. It leads all the way to Samson. And the only difference when Samson comes along is that there is no repentance at all. And after Samson, there's no crying out to the Lord. It just sort of devolves into chaos. Samson's the last judge mentioned in this book. It's really, really bad, and it's really dark, but I want you to remember Ruth 1.1. So if you just go to the end of Judges, the very next book is Ruth, and Ruth 1.1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and we read about this man in Judah, Elimelech, and Naomi, and Malon, and Kilion, and all the things that happened with Ruth. And Ruth comes along at the end of Judges to remind you, when it was really, really dark and seemed hopeless and everything was bad and it looked like it was falling apart, God was still working. God still had a plan for his people. And despite their rebellion and despite the chaos of everything you read at the end of Judges, post-Samson, God was at work for the good of his people. So let me put up a couple of uh, graphics on the screen just to help you visualize some of these things. This is a list of all of the judges, just so you can kind of see them. I know the font's a little bit small, but there's 12 judges mentioned in the book of Judges. I put blue stars by four of them. The four with blue stars are what Bible scholars call major judges. And when you read that, you sort of think like major minor prophets in the Old Testament, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel are major prophets. doesn't mean that they're more important. It just means that those books are longer than the minor prophets that come after it. And it's the same idea here, that idea here in, uh, in Judges. The major judges have lengthy stories about their life. We learn details about them and where they lived and what happened and things they did good and things they did bad. The minor judges, some of them just get a verse or two to say, hey, there was somebody named Ibsen and there was somebody named Tola and there was somebody named Abdon. And this is where they lived, and they defeated so-and-so, and and then it just moves on, and you don't get a lot of detail. So those are the judges, and to that list, we would add Eli. 
Eli comes next when you move into 1 Samuel. He was a judge, and we would also add Samuel. Last two judges not mentioned in the book of Judges. You could, you could tack them on to the end of this list. The next one I want to show you is a map. And again, I know that's really small. I know you can't read a lot of the places. But the different colors that you see are the different tribal allotments for the 12 tribes when they settled in the promised land. Okay, Joshua brought them in. They cast the lots and divvied it up. This is where all the different tribes landed. You can see the Mediterranean Sea on the left. Down at the bottom middle, you see the Dead Sea. And then flowing up above that would be the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee up top. All those white boxes are the judges, okay? And all those white boxes are placed in the location where that judge judged Israel. And I put that up there to show you this. When Samson came along or Jephthah came along or uh, Deborah came along, any of these judges, it wasn't like the judge ruled over all of that territory, It wasn't like all of the tribes recognized this judge and they had some unified army and followed after them. What usually happened is that these judges kind of functioned like local warlords. Like they kind of rose up in their area and they gathered a militia around them and they took care of the Philistines or the Ammonites or whoever was was causing Israel problems. And there was peace in that little area, that one spot. And it lasted as long as that judge was around and then they died and it all went back. But it wasn't like these judges ruled over the nation as a whole. That's why when you get into the very next book in the Bible, these tribes come together and they say, look, we need a king. You know, you're doing your thing, and we're doing this thing, and they're doing this. This is not working for us. We need somebody to rule over us like all the other nations have. And you see that in the life of Samuel. The last thing I want to show you is this. This is a timeline for the book of Judges. Uh, It says up at the top that these dates are tentative because there is guesswork in here. We don't know all of these for certain. And the names are small. In the blue boxes are Judges. In the red boxes, the two down low are Eli and Samuel, and the next two up on the top right are Saul and David. Down at the bottom, it shows you the blue arrow is the timeline for Judges as a book. The red arrow is the timeline for First and Second Samuel. So you see there's some overlap in those two books. And then you see Ruth, the green, down at the bottom, smack during the period of the Judges. And I show you this just so you see that sometimes when you read your Bible, the chronology and the timeline from book to book isn't just real neat cookie cutter, A, B, C, we move from this to this to this. Sometimes it kind of fits together like a a patchwork, and you have to read the context and the names and who was in power and who wasn't, and there's some overlap in there. So there you go. There's just a couple of things visually to help you see what's going on. We're going to talk about Samson's life story, and we're going to read some of the text Not all of his story, but we're going to read as we move through here. The first stage is his birth. Stage one, Samson's birth. This is in Judges 13. We're going to read the first seven verses. Judges 13.1. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So... If you've been reading through Judges, this doesn't surprise you. You're just going round and round on the same cycle. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren. And have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, 
Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Just a couple of things I want to point out to you there. We're not going to read the rest of this story. We're going to come back to this idea of a Nazarite a little bit later. But just file this away in your brain. This messenger tells this woman the child that you're going to have miraculously because you've been barren all these years. Now you're going to have a child. It's going to be a Nazarite from the womb, from birth, all the way to death. Okay? Nazarite vows could last different amounts of time. They could be for life. They could be for a week. They could be for a year or a decade. It just depended. In this case, the messenger says, Nazarite his entire life. A couple other parallels that I think are interesting. In this culture, everyone reading it would expect a messenger like this to appear to who? The husband or the wife? You would expect him to come to the husband. And in this instance, the messenger comes to the wife. And you read that, and if you've read the rest of the Bible, you say, huh, well, that's kind of like Mary and Joseph, where the angel comes to her first. And eventually, he did talk to the husband, and eventually he talks to the husband in this story, but he appears to the woman first. And it fits something you see throughout the book of Judges. I don't know how to say it, guys, other than just to say it, but... The women in the book of Judges are way more noble and virtuous and heroic than the men are. I mean, they're the godly ones, and the men are pretty much scumbags all the way through the book. And I'll just give you a couple of examples as I read through this week. Deborah and Barak. Barak's the general. He should lead the army, and he goes to Deborah and says, I can't do it unless you come with me. So she goes. Jael and Heber. You would think maybe Heber would be the one to drive the, the tent peg through the guy's temple, but no, it's Jael who does it, and she gets all the credit. Jephthah has this vow that he takes about his daughter, and I'm going to kill whatever comes out of my house, and he just comes off looking like a fool, but his daughter comes off looking pretty, pretty honorable. She doesn't run from it. She doesn't chafe from it. She says, you need to keep your vow to the Lord. He shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have killed his daughter, but she's the one who has concern For the vow more than her father. Samson's mother is another example. When you get past Samson, you're going to read about an innocent concubine whose quote-unquote husband treats her like nothing. When you get even past that story, you're going to read about a bunch of just crazed soldiers, men in this militia army who go after these women and steal these women to be their wives. And it's just a theme throughout the book that the women are more noble and more virtuous than the men. So that's his birth. Stage number two is a wedding. It's a wedding. Look at Judges 14. And we're just going to read the first three verses here to get the idea. Eh, we'll read a couple more verses maybe. 1, 2, and 3 says, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. That's a a refrain you read throughout Judges, right? Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And here you get this picture of Samson. You realize, as an informed reader, this isn't about racism or ethnic prejudice. This is all about religion. This idea of the uncircumcised Philistines doesn't mean they're inferior people. It means they worship pagan deities, Why do you have to go among those people to find your wife? Isn't there anyone here that you can marry? Samson has no regard for God's people. He has no regard for God. His lust is uncontrollable. And if the words where he says, go get her for me, strike you as kind of weird, they are kind of weird. Like, I've seen this woman. Go get her. That's going to be my wife. Look at verse 4. All of this under God's sovereignty. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. 
At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So you see a little bit of mixed motives here, but what you clearly see is that all of this is from the Lord. It's under the sovereignty of God. Samson is out of control in lust. He has no regard for the Lord or his people. But all of this falls under God's plan. He's going to use this man in spite of himself. So we'll come back to some of this in a little bit. Uh, There's some interesting details in chapter 14 where he treks through a vineyard and he kills a lion. We'll come back to that. Uh, Look at verse 10 before we move on. His father went down to the woman and Samson prepared a feast there for so the young men used to do. And the rest of this chapter is the very strange story where they're having the wedding party. And Samson says, I'm going to give you a riddle and we're going to have this bet for clothing. And they talk his bride-to-be into telling them the secret to the riddle. And he goes on a rampage and kills 30 guys. And then he decides he doesn't want to marry that woman. And you get to the end of that and you think, what is going on here? He goes to get this woman, and he just demands all these things, and somehow he has some kind of plan in it, the text says, but he doesn't care about God or his people so much. He just wants revenge on these people, and they have this wedding, and then he kills all these guys off this, uh, this bet that they cheated on. It's just it's a strange, strange story, and when you read it, you're supposed to think that it's really, really strange. Stage number three, fighting. Fighting. We're not going to read any of chapter 15. I'll just mention a couple of stories. You can divide this chapter in half. You can go from verse 1 to 8. That's the first half. And then you can go 9 to 20. That's the end of it. So two stories of fighting. The first one at the beginning of the chapter goes like this. Samson decides, remember after he didn't want to marry this woman, that he does want to marry her. So he goes back to get this woman who ratted him out and caused him to lose the bet. So he goes back for this woman. When he goes back, they've already married her off because they thought Samson was long gone. Samson says, what in the world? That was my wife. You married my wife off to somebody else. And his response, I'll come back to this idea in a minute, but he captures 300 foxes. I don't even know how you do that. But he captures 300 foxes, ties their tails together, puts a torch between the tails of a pair, and sets them loose in the grain so that they burn down all of the, the fields of the Philistines. It's crazy. And then you move on to the back half of the chapter, and not surprisingly, the Philistines are on the hunt for Samson. He just burned their food supply. They don't have anything to eat. So they're looking to kill this guy, and the men of Judah kind of freak out, and they come to Samson. He's living out in the cave, and they say, hey, look, the Philistines are coming. They're ticked off. We just need to turn you in. And he says, okay, great, turn me in, tie me up. So they tie him up. They take him to the Philistines. He gets there. He breaks the ropes off. He grabs a jawbone of a donkey, which was around for some reason, and kills a 1,000 guys. And you get to the end of that, and you say, this is the craziest story. If you're a fifth-grade boy, you say, this is the greatest story I've ever read in my whole life. This is fantastic. But if you have five brain cells, and you're out of middle school, you read it and you say, what in the world is happening here? This is so strange. So, there you go. Next stage, Delilah. It gets weirder. Delilah. Look at Judges 16. We'll read the first six verses. Samson went to Gaza. That's the territory of the Philistines. There he saw a prostitute. And I don't know if it's right for me to say I love how the, the author says this, but he just kind of says it like, he went and saw a prostitute. Like, well, okay, that's the kind of guy he is. That's what he did. He went and saw a prostitute. He went into her. And the Gazites were told, Samson has come here. They surrounded the place and they set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night saying, let's wait till the light of the morning. Then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and he pulled them up, bar and all, and he put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Verse 4, after this he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah, still Philistine territory. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him, And see where his great strength lies. So depending on how you 
took the vote a minute ago, you could say these guys look at Samson as an ordinary-looking dude, and they say, we got to figure out how this guy does it. Or they look at him as this big, ginormous guy, and they say, we got to figure out how he got so big because we need the same stuff or whatever. Seduce him. See where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Now look, that's as far as we're going to read. You know the rest of the story. On the surface, any rational person would hear that and say, I need to get a new girlfriend. This is not going in the right direction. Instead, he plays a game. It's, it's a cute thing to him. And uh, first he says, you take seven fresh bowstrings that have never been dried and you tie me up, I won't be able to get out. And they go through the whole thing. She ties him up. Philistines are upon you and he breaks them off. Secondly, she comes back and she's kind of pouty and she says, what's going on? You, you lied to me. That wasn't funny. And he says, okay, what you got to do is you got to take new ropes that have never been used, tie me up. I won't be able to do anything. So he goes to sleep, passes out drunk, whatever. She ties him up. Philistines are upon you, breaks them off. He's ready to fight. Third time, same thing. Samson says, weave my hair into the loom. Take the locks of my hair. Remember, it's long because he's a Nazarite. Weave it into this loom. I won't be able to do a thing. I'll just be like anyone else. And they do the whole thing. Philistines are upon you, and he gets up, and he's ready to tear somebody limb from limb. And then finally, he comes clean to her. She really lays it on hot and heavy and whatever and says, you're just, you don't love me, you don't care about me, and gives him this pity party uh, type stuff. And he says, if you shave my head, I'll be as weak as an ordinary man. I'll just be like everybody else. And look, you know the story. Sometimes you're so familiar with the story, you don't realize how weird the story is, right? That's a really weird story. Why would he not clue in at some point that this is not going well. This woman is trying to kill me. This woman is trying to harm me. This woman is trying to, to do something terrible to me. And the only thing I can say is what we know about Samson from reading through Judges is that he had zero self-control. Absolutely no self-control. And I think it's safe to assume that that lack of self-control fed into alcohol and sex. And that those two things were so powerful in his life that somehow you combine those in a bad cocktail and you say, this guy, as strong as he was, was just as dumb as a brick. Maybe he was drunk all the time. Maybe he just wanted to get in bed with her so bad that he would do whatever he needed to do. But he has no self-control. And it gets to the point where he doesn't even have any common sense. And he ends up telling her the secret. The last stage is his death. His death. And we'll read about that. Chapter 16. They've captured him. They've gouged his eyes out. We saw the Rembrandt painting. Uh, they have him grounding the mill in the prison. And then his hair starts to grow again. Verse 23. The lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, to rejoice. And they said... Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. So what you have going on here is a worship service, right? Like is a pagan worship service, worshiping and praising Dagon for handing Samson over to them. When their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord, and notice it's in all caps, 
So he calls to Yahweh. All the people in the place are worshiping Dagon. Samson is calling to Yahweh. And he says, O Lord God, O Yahweh, Elohim, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rests, and he leaned his weight against them, and his right hand on the one and his left on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. And that's the end, and he dies. It's a tragic end to the last judge mentioned in the book of Judges. So how do we think about his life? Let's talk negatives and positives. Here's the negative. Samson made a complete mockery of his Nazarite vow, and he clearly had issues with lust and rage. He makes a mockery of his Nazarite vow, and he has no restraint on lust, and he has no restraint on his rage. So I just want you to see these in the text. I think it's obvious, but let's just make sure we see it. Hold your spot in Judges and flip back to Numbers chapter 6. I want you to read with me the instructions that God gave his people for the Nazarite vow. Number 6. And we'll read the first eight verses in number six. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink uh, shall... And shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. Right? That's, um, that's pretty clear. Stay away from grapes. No skins, no seeds, no wine, no vinegar, no nothing, none of it. Stay away from it if you're going to take this vow. All the days of his vow... Of separation, no razor shall touch his head. Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair, uh, of his head, grow long. So you see in there the idea that this wasn't always a lifetime thing. There was sometimes where you would take a Nazarite vow for a month or for a week or for a year. Samson's is from birth to death. We already saw that. Verse 6, all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. So three ideas wrapped up in this Nazarite vow. No grapes, alcohol, wine, nothing fermented, none of it. Number two, don't cut your hair. And number three, don't touch anything dead. Not even for your family. If they were to die during this time of a vow, even for them, you don't touch anything that's died. So then dial it back and look at Samson. In Judges chapter 14, this is some of what we skipped over. He's demanded a wife. And Judges 14 verse 5 says this. Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. And they came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now, does the text say that he ate grape seeds? No. Does it say that he had a keg of wine or vinegar? No. Does it say that he peeled off the skins and ate the skins just to defy the vow? No. But the author is telling you something. Part of this vow is to stay away from grapes, and here he is hanging out in a vineyard. Has no regard for the vow. Then you keep reading this interesting story. I used to think this story was so strange as a kid. Uh, Verse uh, 5. Behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. The Spirit of the Lord rushed on him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. 
but he didn't tell his father or his mother what he had done. And I used to think, well, why not? Like, fifth grade boy reading this story. And I'm like, if I killed a lion, I'm going to tell somebody. Like, I'm going to go home and say, guess what I did? I just took a lion and ripped it in half. It was the greatest, but he doesn't tell anybody. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. There's that phrase again. You saw it back up in verse 3. She was right in his eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass. Remember that third part of the Nazarite vow, don't touch anything dead? He sees the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. And you can just see Samson walking by looking at that, thinking, I'm not supposed to touch anything dead. But no one knows that I killed that lion. So no one needs to know where I got the honey from. He scraped it out in his hands, verse 9 says, and he went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and he gave some to them. And they ate it. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Why? It's because he was breaking his vow. Right? No grapes. Hanging out in a vineyard. Don't touch a dead body. He's eating out of a lion carcass. And then we get to the end and we say, what was, what was the big deal? Why did God lose his temper so bad when Samson told her about the hair and cut his hair? Well, God's been pretty patient with this guy so far. It wasn't exactly like God lost his cool at the end. But God is patient with him as he breaks the part about the vineyard and he breaks the part about the carcass. And then finally this last straw is the one that does it. And he loses his strength uh, with the issue of his hair. So he makes a mockery of the vow. And he has issues with lust and rage. Um, the lust, I think we've, we've read that. He demands a wife. He visits a prostitute. And then he shacks up with Delilah. He's got an issue with women. And secondly, um, this story about the foxes is just, I can't quit thinking about that. I looked it up and I found some art um, about the foxes. And this is not just explosive rage, like you lose your cool in the moment. But this is like explosive rage that leads to a slow burn and a very intentional, thought-out plan. I, how long do you think it takes to catch 300 foxes? And like the whole time, he's thinking, I'm going to get them. I'm going to get them. I'm going to destroy the whole food supply for these people. I'm going to get them. And it's so over the top that you, you read the story and you think, that's the work of a crazy man. Like, that's something you could lift straight out of the, one of the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. I'm thinking about the Joker who does all these crazy things in that movie just to do them. And you're like, this is so, it's crazy. And then the story about the, the bet early on in his life where he has this riddle with the, at his first wedding and his wife rats him out and the guys win the bet and he has to give them all a set of clothes. And his solution to that is, I'm going to go murder 30 men and take their clothes and bring them back to you. And when you read that, you say, this guy is a little bit crazy. He's a little bit unstable. So he's got issues with lust. He's got issues with rage. What is the positive here it is. This is all we got. Samson is remembered as a man of faith. A man of faith. There is only one place in the rest of the Bible where Samson is mentioned, and it's the book of Hebrews. And so let's read first Judges 16, 28 one more time, and then let's go to Hebrews. Judges 16, 28. Samson called to the Lord, to Yahweh. And he said, O Lord God, O Yahweh Elohim, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Okay, That's good in the sense that he doesn't call out to Dagon. He doesn't call out to Baal like many of the other Israelites were doing. He doesn't call out to Ashtoreth. He calls out to Yahweh. He calls out to the one true God. And if we're honest, okay, let's just be honest, his motives here aren't exactly pure. He doesn't say, let me get these guys because they're a bunch of pagans who refuse to worship the one true God. Like, they're not giving you the glory that you deserve. What he says is, 
I'm ticked about my eyes. And I want to get these people. Still selfish in his heart. But the positive is he's calling out to the Lord. He's calling out to Yahweh. So flip over to Hebrews 11. We'll read what the book of Hebrews says. And let's read starting in verse 32. What more shall I say? So we've already gone through. Let's just look at some of these names we've mentioned. We've talked about in chapter 11. Abel. And we've talked about Noah. And we've talked about Abraham. And we've talked about Isaac. And we've talked about Joseph and Moses. And we've talked about the people crossing the Red Sea. And we've talked about the walls of Jericho. That's Joshua. And we've talked about Rahab. Verse 32. What more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some, here's a shift in verse 35. All those things we say, that would be really exciting. But notice the shift. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what is promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect enough. The argument continues in chapter 12. I just think this is a strange thing to reconcile the story you read in Judges about a guy who doesn't seem to have many redeeming qualities popping up in this list in the hall of faith, these heroes of the faith listed out in Hebrews 11. And he's right there with Gideon, who we talked about. Gideon put the Lord to the test intentionally. And Gideon set up an idol for the people to worship. And here he is, right here in the list. And Jephthah, we've mentioned him along the way several times as we've looked at other judges. He was a rotten guy. And Barak was a bit of a coward. And right in the middle of that is Samson. Through faith, they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained the promises. Here's the only way I know how to try to hold these together. On the one hand... I think you have to be honest enough to look at the book of Judges and say the book of Judges paints a really dark picture of Samson. He is not presented as somebody you want your son to grow up and be like. He is definitely not presented as somebody you want your daughter to grow up and marry. He's crazy. He's unhinged. He's unstable. He's lustful. He's rages and violence. He's a bad dude. But When it came down to the last moments of his life, he cried out to the right person. He cried out to Yahweh, not to Baal, not to Ashtoreth, not to Milcom, not to Dagon, not to any of these pagan gods, but he cried out to the Lord. Did he cry out with a little bit of an impure heart and impure motives? Yes, but he cried out to the right person. And the takeaway from that, I think, is really, really important. You and I are not saved Because we can muster up some kind of strong, honorable, noble faith. We're not saved by the strength of our faith. We're not saved by the the purity of our faith. We are saved by the object of our faith. And we've talked about this before when we talked about the Passover, right? We've talked about faith in the context of the Passover, where those people that night who slaughtered the lambs and put the blood on the door, those people who did all the things that the Lord commanded, and they went to bed that night thinking, oh, I just don't know. I'm really anxious, and I'm not sure it's going to work out. This seems like a stretch. Those people woke up the next morning, and their kids woke up the next morning, 
It's not because their faith was so strong or their faith was perfect. It was because their faith was in the right God. We're not saved by the strength of our faith, but by who our faith is in. And we can at least commend Samson for this. He's remembered as a man of faith. And in the last moments of his life, he does cry out to the Lord, to Yahweh, to the God of Israel. So how does he point us to Jesus? Let me give you a couple of thoughts and we'll wrap up. Uh, This first one is wordy, I know, but I wanted you to get the point. Samson began to save Israel from the Philistines. His birth was miraculous. He was commissioned before he was born, and the Spirit of the Lord was with him. Sounds a lot like Jesus, born to save his people from their sins. His birth was miraculous, commissioned before he was born, and the Spirit of the Lord was with him. I'm going to let you look up Matthew 1 and 4 on your own a little bit later, but Matthew 1.21 says you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from his sins, a parallel to Samson. Verse 18 describes a miraculous birth where the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow this virgin. Not the same kind of miracle, but both births were miraculous. Verse 23, he was sent to be God with us at a mission before he was born. And then when you get into chapter 4, you see the Spirit of the Lord is driving him out into the wilderness. Again, a parallel with Samson having the Spirit of the Lord on him at times. Second way that Samson points us to Jesus. Samson willingly gave his life to defeat the enemies of Israel. And I know, I'm aware when you read the story, that he didn't do it with the best of motives. He wanted revenge for his eyes. But he did willingly give his life to defeat the enemies of Israel, just like Jesus willingly gave his life to defeat the enemy of mankind. So I'll let you look up 1 John 3 that says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He came, willingly died, so that he could defeat Satan. Last idea is this, and this is a bit of a contrast. Samson saved Israel by fighting, but Jesus saved his people by dying. Samson, the judge, saved by fighting. Jesus, the Savior, saved by dying. And let's just end by reading a few verses from John 10. Samson does die in the end, but he dies trying to get revenge on his enemies. Jesus dies in the end, but he dies for his enemies, for you and me. John 10, 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. So in the end, when you look at the story of Samson, you ought to be left scratching your head a little bit. I mean, he's the last judge in the book of Judges. He's the one that it all builds up to. And you get to him and you say, this guy is a total loser. This, how is this guy going to be the one to save Israel? That's the whole point. He's not. He is not the one that Israel was waiting for and looking for. He's not the one that Israel needed. But when you look at his life, you see many parallels and many pointers driving you forward so that you look for the one who was to come, and that one was Jesus. So that's Samson.